Sunday morning. It is July 23rd. Our message is called Secret Workings this morning. We're going to start in Proverbs 25, and I want to read you this in verse 2. It says, It is to the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. When you read that, that could just be poetic speech to you. You could let it go in one ear and out the other, like so many other things that we hear in our lives. But if you did, you'd be mistaken. There are so many things that have happened in your lives that you've stood back and questioned and wondered why. Why on earth do some of the hardships that come into your life happen? Why have you been made to struggle the way you have? Been tempted at times to dwell in self-pity. What about me? The Lord doesn't see my plight. Over and over and over. I found out that this great king of the universe that we serve has got an ingenious plan. He doesn't just throw himself out there for the whole world to receive the way that we talk about it. He really doesn't. I know the cross seems that way. But the truth is, his workings are mysterious. They're even at times seemingly secret. So that what he's done in you, Ecclesiastes says, is he's put a seed. He's put eternity in your heart. He gave each one of you a longing for Him somewhere in your heart. And now what He's done is through parable, through shadow and type, through ancient prophecies, He's laid some truths out there and He's waiting to see what you will do with them. The Bible says it's to the glory of God to conceal the matter, but it's to the glory of kings to search it out. The question this morning is, will you be kingly? Will you be what He's called you to be? He put in your heart a desire to know Him. And He's not always made it as easy as preachers make it sound. Just walk an aisle. Just repeat after me. You're saved, frozen, chosen, good to go, eat some donuts and come to Sunday school and by all means tithe. That's not the message of the Word. The message is to those that earnestly seek, it will be open. The message is to those that are willing to lose their lives, they will find it. It's a message of people that are sold out for God, leaving nothing back. Turn with me to Luke. There's a parable that may not be a parable. It may actually be a story, a, a true story. I don't know whether Jesus was speaking as a figure of speech or not. How many of you have heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan? Now, by the way, if y'all don't talk to me, I'll cry and leave. Okay? Won't that be awkward, huh? I bet you've never seen a preacher do that. In Luke 10, we have a parable, and the emphasis of this parable is always taught one way. And I want to turn it on its head today. It's always taught about how we love our neighbor, because that's the question that is at hand. But I'll point something else out to you. I don't know what your backgrounds are, but if you're like every other human being that I've ever met, parts of it have been difficult. It may have been divorces in your family. It may have been drug and alcohol. Lord, I don't know. Statistically speaking, there may be molestation. I'm not sure what it is that the devil has sown into your life to try to destroy you. But I know you're made of the same stuff I am. And you've probably been hit with some pretty heavy blows. The question that lost people often ask is, how could a good God allow me to struggle in this way? How on earth could God allow the things that have happened in my life to happen? I notice there's not a lot of eye contact, and that's okay. That means either you're thinking about it or you're trying hard to ignore it. But I can tell you in my life, 
there have been moments, even in the kingdom, where I sat on the edge of my bed, put my head between my knees, and said, Lord, I don't understand. Where I wanted to throw up because I didn't understand what was going on. I want you to get this. We're going to start this parable in the 25th verse. Those of you that know about this ministry know that we have kind of a messianic theme. None of us are Jews, but we're in love with the Jewish king. Some have been confused by that. They walk in and they see a mezuzah, or they see the talit, or the zitzit, the shofars. They say, are you all Jews? No, we're not Jews. We just are Gentiles that are worshiping a Jewish king. But I found out it's important to know about Jewish culture. It's important to understand the culture that God chose for His Son to be revealed in. The very culture that's supposed to display His life. And in studying that, one of the things that's interesting to me is that when we travel from Louisiana or Texas to New York, when we head north, we might say we go up. Right? If we were in New York and we were traveling to the Gulf of Mexico, we might say we're going down south. Would you not? That's kind of ironic, isn't it subjective? I mean, we live on a big ball of dirt. Which way's up and which way's down? Don't east and west meet somewhere on the globe? How does that work? Well, the Jews had a different orientation than we do. To them, anywhere they are in the world, to go towards Jerusalem is to go up. In fact, if a Jew today living in New York reads in the Scripture, somewhere like Ezekiel 36, that God is to turn their hearts and fill them with His Spirit in a powerful way, and that His desire is for them to live in Israel... They call it making aliyah, the going up, elevating themselves back to Jerusalem from whatever holes they've slidden to all over the globe. Now, the reason that's important is because as we set this parable in its place, Jesus didn't choose directions by chance. Jesus didn't choose the people mentioned in it by chance. The audience understood things that just escapes us. And I want you to get it. Starting in verse 25, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Boy, that's a bad position to be in. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you notice he didn't ask Jesus how to go to heaven? He asked how to inherit a life that would never end. That's what the gospel is about. It's not about going to heaven, although that may be your home. There's a day when our bodies will be changed. They'll be glorified. They will never die. John 5 and John 6 say that is what eternal life is. If that's a surprise to you, we need to dig in the Word and quit being spoon-fed from pulpits. It's been great for our forefathers for hundreds of years to say, hey, repent, be baptized, and go to heaven. But that phrase doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. Die and go to heaven does not appear not anywhere, not once in the text. Paul said if you're absent from the body, you're present with the Lord. That's true. You're in heaven. But the Bible describes heaven coming and being set up on earth the kingdom of God set up on earth. Not on a planet. Not on clouds with little naked babies playing harps. Like our church art has taught us. So he wants to know, how do I inherit this eternal life that was promised to Israel? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Believe this and you'll live. That's not what he said, is it? The church is not short anywhere on what we believe. 
Lord, you walk into the ten churches in the few square miles around here and ask, what do you believe? And they will hand it to you in writing. What they've believed for hundreds of years that cannot change or else they're not whatever the sign says they are. The problem is not that we don't believe. The problem is that we do not do. Have you ever heard people quote the Beatitudes and then forget to be each of those attitudes? Hmm. But he wanted to justify himself. Wow, don't we all? So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. What do you all know about Jericho? What's the first time you remember it mentioned in Scripture? God has called Joshua, whose name is Yehoshua, which is a variant, it's written right here, of Yeshua. It's the name of Jesus. He's a shadowing type of Jesus. To take Israel into the promised land, but there is a problem. In crossing the Jordan River at flood stage, they face a powerful kingdom, a worldly kingdom. Jericho. Jericho stands for the kingdom of the world. In fact, God knocked it down, not through military might, but by the power of His Spirit. What happened? Seven days, a perfect revolution. They walked around this city. They didn't take up arms against it. They blew one of the things. Your Bible says a trumpet. It's a shofar. With the Spirit God gave them, came out through the authority of the ram, the king of the sheep. And the people in the city heard it and they trembled. They did this once a day for seven days. And on the seventh day, they did it seven times. And what happened? The kingdom of the world fell. You know that Joshua said, if this is ever rebuilt, it will be at the cost of a man's firstborn son. The kingdom of the world is supposed to fall. Jesus is talking about somebody. I told you the Jews make aliyah. They ascend from wherever they are to Jerusalem. In fact, they sing the great Hillel, Psalms 113-115. through And they praise God that they are ascending to a place where they feel closer to Him than any on the planet. This guy is on the right road. It's a road from the world's kingdom, Jerusalem, to God's kingdom, Jerusalem, or the world's kingdom, Jericho, to God's kingdom, Jerusalem. They are on the right road, are they not? But this guy is headed the wrong direction. So much of the American church is here. We know the right things to say. We know what to say we believe. But our lives show that we are headed the wrong direction. This parable is always emphasized from the standpoint of a good Samaritan that came along. But what about this poor fellow that is on the right road but headed the wrong direction? Listen to what the Word says. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. Now, would anybody in here, you young man, would you like to be robbed today? You didn't wake up out of bed today and say, you know, today, oh my goodness, this feels good. I'm going to go get robbed and beaten. <laughs> of course not, right? Nobody wants bad things to happen in their life. But I bet you've all quoted that Scripture in Romans 8.28 that says, For in all things God works for the good of those that love Him and are called according to His purpose, haven't you? So are there really bad things that happen in your lives? Hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. A man, was, a man was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and he went, and went away leaving him half dead. Now, I love that. Can you be half dead? How about half pregnant? Have you girls in here ever been half pregnant? <laughs> Doesn't work that way. What does it mean to be half dead? Did Jesus just misspeak? The poor guy doesn't understand how this works? 
When he says that he's half dead, what he's indicating to you and what the Jew understood is he's supposed to be ascending towards Jerusalem, but instead he is sliding towards the world. And he's been beaten and robbed and is half dead. In other words, he's got a foot in two kingdoms. He's got the foot that is supposed to be in Jerusalem on the right road, but he's also got a foot in the world. You tell me that's not where the church is. How many times have people at some spiritual emphasis at some pep rally for Jesus given their heart and then Friday night found themselves on the road to Jericho? Hey, I was a Christian teenager, I know. Actually, I was not a Christian. (laughs) But I won the Bible awards in school. Had the gift certificates on the wall that said I'd been baptized. I could quote more Scripture than most people. But my life showed that I was sliding towards Jericho for the grace of God beatings that I've endured. For the grace of God. You know why? It's a chance to change your direction. I read to you that it is to the glory of God to conceal the matter. But it's to the glory of kings for it to be revealed. Deuteronomy 29.29 says that the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever. What I'm asking you to do today is take a look at your life. What brought you here? Why are you sitting in these seats? Is it just because you wanted to hear somebody sing? It's because somebody pushed you so hard that you couldn't say no? It's because you didn't want to let your pastor down? I don't know. But I do know this. God has been working in the affairs of mankind's life. While I'm on that subject, does anybody in here know who Epimedes is? That girl's reading books I'm giving her. Epimedes was a man from Crete. And he was a... By the way, y'all know who the Apostle Paul is, of course, right? And we wear that like a title, like his business card would say, the Apostle Paul. Except his name was Shaul, Saul. It's a Hebrew word. Named after a great king in Israel. Shaul was actually of the tribe of Benjamin, just like King Shaul. But Shaul had a different name as well, and it's the one that we know him by. It was his Roman name. It means small. It's Paul. Shaul, the great king, and Paul, the small guy. And God changed his name from Shaul, the great king, to Paulus, small. Shaul Paulus of Tarsus was his name. He had a unique advantage. There's a reason that you love him the way that you do for all he endured for the gospel. But one of his unique advantages is he was raised in what the Bible calls no ordinary city, Tarsus. Tarsus was a center of Greek learning. It was a place where this Hebrew of Hebrews could be educated in all the ways of the Greek world as well. And in his education, he knew of a man named Epimedes. But let me tell you the story. In Athens, some four or five hundred years before Jesus ever lived, there was a plague. Athens was the capital of Greek idolatry. There were more gods in Athens than anywhere in the Greek kingdom anywhere on the globe. And this plague began to kill people. I don't know if you've noticed, but in times of war, church attendance goes up. Right after 9-11, church attendance hit an American high since World War II. Isn't that interesting? What is it about tragedy that drives people to God? Well, Athens was no different, except they had hundreds of gods to choose from. So they began to sacrifice and call on the name of their gods. And they could bring about no change. 
This was frustrating. The only thing worse than feeling like your only God doesn't hear you is that the 360 gods that you worship don't hear you. And they began to get discouraged. And one of them says, wait, I've heard of a prophet, but he's a foreigner. Why is it that God always uses somebody from outside to come and speak to people? Why do white men sail across an ocean to speak to dark-skinned people? Why does God send dark-skinned people across mountain ranges into new areas to speak to white-skinned people? There is something about the Gospel that requires you to humble yourself, to realize, I don't have it all figured out. I need help. I may be on the right road, but I'm sliding in the wrong direction. I feel robbed and beaten. So they cry out for this foreign prophet. Those of you that are intimately familiar with the New Testament writings, you've heard Paul said that Cretans were lazy sluggards and this testimony was true about them. (laughs) Strange thing to write in the Bible, huh? Except that this Cretan named Epimedes traveled all the way from the island of Crete to Mars Hill, the Oropagus in Athens. He said, I'm going to make a few assumptions for you guys. It looks to me like you've sacrificed to every god that you know and you've brought about no change. So let us assume something. There must be a god that is working in your midst that you do not yet know of. They said, well, that sounds reasonable. What do we do? He goes, well, I don't know. I don't know this god. Let's do this. It's a spiritual experiment. Let's take our very finest flocks Dark goats, white goats, speckled goats, spotted goats. Let's keep them up all night. Let's not feed them. We'll put them in pens on Mars Hill and we'll let them go in the morning. If goats go out and do not eat, if some do not eat but stand at attention, we'll assume that those are the ones that this God wants us to sacrifice. So they do this and the next morning, the finest ram from each of the different kinds of flocks stays in the pen and doesn't go out to eat. And they took this as a sign from God. He said, build altars. We'll sacrifice these and perhaps the plague will stop. A young man cried out in the distance, but how do we build an altar to whose name do we write on it? Shall we write to the God of this plague? Nepomedes said, heavens no. The reason that we're trusting this God to hear us is because we're humbling ourselves saying we don't know about Him and we need to be taught. Write on it to an unknown God. Turn with me to Acts 17. Keep your finger in Luke. By the way, they sacrificed on this this altar that had the words written to an unknown God and the plague stopped. And for some time, they kept up this particular altar and they prayed to the unknown God. But just like the American church just like the Jews in Israel, and unfortunately just like you. As times got better and the need was not so great, the altar slipped into disrepair, just like the altars of our hearts. Until an apostle named Paul, some 450 years later, shows up in Athens. In 17, chapter 17, verse 16, it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the place, day by day, with those who happened to be there. 
a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, those are Greek philosophers, began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Oropagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are... I see that in every way you are very religious. Boy, what restraint did that take? He's a Jew. The first commandment given in the Jew. You shall have no gods beside me. The second commandment given in the Jew. You shall not make any idols of anything in heaven above or on the earth below. And yet he says, I see that you're very religious in every way. Thank God for somebody that's been in your life that showed you kindness when they could have shown you judgment. I love James 2.13. It says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you that God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by human hands. And He is not served by human hands as if He needed anything because He Himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man He made every nation that they should inhabit the whole earth. Listen to this phrase. And He determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek Him and perhaps reach out and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. That verse 28, does your Bible have quotes around for in Him we live and move and have our being? you know why it has quotes? Because Paul is quoting someone. you know who he's quoting? Epimedes, the Cretan prophet. Could it be that God allowed a horrible plague, tragedy, because He hated these people? Not because He wanted to destroy them, but because He was looking for an opportunity to show them kindness. Could it be that 450 years in advance God was working so that one day when a man of destiny, an apostle, you remember the Apostle Paul? Apostle means one who is sent. Somebody sent from God shows up in this city that there would be an object within their culture that he could point to. It's to this unknown God that I'm here to talk to you about. So there might stand some chance of reaching God's purpose for their lives because God determined the times and places that men would live and work because His desire is that you would reach out and find Him. You know what that means? That means you're not a waiter because you wanted to be a waiter. You're not a mechanic simply because you threw the dice and they landed on the mechanic position. God determined the places you would live and work in. Why? Why? Because He desires that all men would reach out and find Him. Back to our man in Luke 
He's on the right road, but he's headed the wrong direction. So what does God do for him? God calls him to fall into a negative, horrible situation so that he might have the opportunity to show him kindness. We always talk about the Good Samaritan and now he comes forward and he saves the day and the emphasis is on the Samaritan. The Samaritan knew God before and knew God after. The Samaritan was not the one that was in trouble. The guy that's in trouble is the one that is being beaten and stripped and kicked around by this life because they don't know. God's ways are mysterious to them. I don't know why I've been made to suffer the way I have. I don't know why I struggle the way that I do. But, oh God, please reveal it to me. Help me. Send me some kind of appointment. Send me somebody who will help me straighten this out. I don't know who it is in your life. I know that the Father sent His Son for that very purpose. And now His Son has representatives all over the earth doing the same thing. I don't know why you came this morning. I know I have one shot at you because you're sitting here. And I hope to persuade you that it's worth being a little introspective with your life. Everything's not okay. It never has been. If everything was okay when you drove down 59, people would not be mad at each other. When you got a call from a telemarketer, you wouldn't want to slam it down. If somebody cut you off in traffic, you wouldn't be at least tempted to give them the one-finger salute. <laughs> lady did that to me in a parking lot. And I looked at my watch and it was 1.15 on a Sunday. She was dressed very nice. And as fate would have it, poor thing, somebody pulled out in front of her at that moment. Gave me the opportunity to walk over and have a discussion with her. I said, sweetheart, you're dressed so pretty today. She's looking at me out of the little crack in her window. I said, who's your pastor? I thought he'd be proud of your behavior. I'd like to meet him. <laughs> Bible sitting in the seat right next to her. The problem's not what we believe. The problem is how we live. By the way, the reason the Good Samaritan parable is emphasized in the way that it is is because a priest passed by on the other side. Somebody in the importance of God. Somebody whose income is derived from doing God's will. Well, sucks to be you. Passes by on the other side. And then a Levite passes by on the other side. These men were supremely equipped for this task. Their whole life had been spent in the preparation of helping men such as this. And a Samaritan, somebody that the Bible considers to be a dog, less than human, half-breed, but has a heart after God, shows himself to be a king. Because what was concealed from the priest and the Levite was revealed to the Samaritan. This is where God's heart is in helping people. I don't know what brings us to this place other than there is a divine force at work in our lives. These times and places are ordained. You're here because it's a destiny of yours to be here. From one man He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and determine the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. He did this so that men would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him. We go so far in talking about all God's done to reveal Himself to us, all Jesus has done to pay for your sins, that we forget you have a responsibility. Your responsibility is to yearn for Him, to reach for Him, to cry for Him. It is so easy to lay in bed and watch TV 
And it is so hard to kneel beside your bed and pray. It is so easy to sit back and watch the matrix. It is so hard to read your Word. Why is that? Because at the same time eternity is in your heart, foolishness is bound up in it as well. Show yourself to be kingly by pushing aside your base nature and saying, Lord, I want more of You. Don't lie when we sing songs that say, empty me that I might be filled with You. Where is the church's brokenness? Where is our contrite heart? Where is our sober judgment about ourselves? Are we so happy that we've been redeemed that we insult our redemption by not caring about the things God cares about? By sinning in our freedoms? By refusing to take up the cause of the widow and the orphan? By allowing injustice all around us? When is the last time, church, that you thought deeply about people other than yourselves? Hey, we've all got important things going on in our lives, and I know it. We've got weddings, births of babies, people in the hospital, all kind of things, and it's great. But a Christian's life is centrifugal. It has to spin out of you. What Jesus put in you was not for you. It was for what He can get out of you. He gave you a talent that you might increase. He wants you to advance His kingdom by being the man sent into someone else's life to help them realize that it's their goal, their job, their destiny to reach out for God because God's desiring to meet your needs. I'm sorry if your mother and father and your church and whoever else it is that you would like to blame have let you down and not setting the right example. But where does your responsibility start and stop? When will you stand up for God? When will you decide no longer will I slide towards Jericho? I'm called for Aliyah. It's elevation from this point forward. In John 1, y'all already mad at me? Hang in there. Old lady told me one time, I'm still the kid preacher, but if you think I'm a kid preacher now, you should have seen me then. She said, that's okay, son. A good preacher will step on your toes sometimes. I thought, good, she understands. Thanks. The Word is a mirror. When you look into it, something's wrong if you see everybody else's flaws. If you think I'm talking about the person on your left or right, you are sadly mistaken. The Word's speaking about you. John teaches us about Jesus. And in the first chapter of John, In the 14th verse, it says, The Word, the Word of God, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the One and Only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning Him. He cries out saying, This was He of whom I said, He comes after Me, has surpassed Me because He was before Me. What a complicated riddle. He's saying Jesus predated Him. From the fullness of His grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18 is what I wanted to get to. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. Thanks. I don't know how much you've ever thought about this complicated phrase in the Scripture. Sometimes it doesn't say God, the one and only. It says the only begotten. Your translation might be slightly different, but you know what's the same everywhere? 
says no one has ever seen God. So, well, what about Moses? Well, Stephen tells us in Acts 7 that Moses saw angels on the mountain, angels that represented God. And for every instance that you can think of where you say, but what about so-and-so? The Word will go ahead and explain. We're talking about an angel of the Lord. But listen, he says no one has ever seen God at any time. But God, the one and only, has made Him known. Saints, are we talking about seeing? Are we talking about knowing? Find out their expressions were not that much different than ours. If I'm explaining to you a concept and I look at you and say, Mackenzie, do you see it? Am I really asking whether it's within her frame of vision? Or am I asking, does she understand it? See, the problem with mankind is God's ways seem mysterious to us. It's been to His glory to conceal it. We have to show ourselves to be kingly in searching it out. And in doing so, we quickly begin to realize that God's ways are beyond understanding. He can't be seen, comprehended, or understood. So, one that was at His side, His one and only, has made Him known. We're not talking about seeing with your eyes. We're talking about understanding. Acts 17, what I didn't go on to read, Paul got ran out of the Areopagus. And one of the reasons that he got ran out was because he said, in the past God let all men go their own way in ignorance. He said, but now He's called all men to repent because He's appointed one man to judge the living and the dead. And He proved this raising Him from the dead. Jesus Christ appeared to help you know and understand who the Father is. That is His mission. That is His goal. In fact, you find as you move to John 5, and you don't have to turn there, you should know this. Jesus says, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He only does what He sees and hears the Father doing. Jesus is here to make God's way understandable to us. And He's called us to be like Him. Your life should sound a clear call. Corinthians 13 says, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will know how to get ready for the battle? Does your life sound a clear call? When people look at you, do they see something that teaches them about God? Well, the truth is they do see something that teaches them about God, but is it good or not? It's like my Father's Day message. Every father imparts something to their children. Even if they left you before you were born, they imparted something. It just might be a great big void. We're going to make our mark on this globe. You just get to decide what your mark's going to be. Hebrews 1.3 is one of my favorites. It says, The Son, being the radiance of God's glory, is the exact representation of His being. Basically, what we have is if you backed off of this earth, no matter how far you went, if you were an astronaut, you couldn't take in all of the earth's oceans. You couldn't view it all because we live on a globe. No matter how far away you get, you can't get enough perspective for you to see the whole thing. God is such a big topic that it's understandable that He's a mystery to you. But what is not a mystery to you is that He poured those oceans into a giant aquarium so that you could see it and understand it, taste of His substance, see of His nature. That is Jesus to you. You need to study His life. You need to imitate Him. You need to be disciplined by Him so that we will live like Him. He won't let all men go their own way any longer. That was an ignorant way of life. It was not the abundant life. 
I never forget watching the movie Amistad. These poor slaves look out and they see people crying out holding their Bibles, talking about Jesus. And the slaves' perspective was who are these sour people who are sucking on lemons? All they saw was people that were unhappy. Church, where's the joy? Where's the overflowing love? Has this religion become to us rule upon rule? Has it become a song that we teach our children like ABC? Is it dry and mundane? God needs to circumcise our hearts that we can be moved by Him. We need to taste of His true substance, not dry, dead, weak religion. He's just as real today as He's ever been. I don't have stained glass in here to trick you into a heavenly appearance. We don't have smoke and lights in our worship for a reason. We're standing before you without any beauty or majesty to draw you to us because we believe that what sets people apart as special is God working in their lives. I love when the prophecies before the service preach our message. How many times did somebody in some kind of way cry out that God is willing? He'll take your burden from you. He wants to pour Himself into you. The question is, how long will you wait? Trust is a curious thing. You know, George Michael sang a song. Y'all remember this one? You got to have faith. I know you girls remember that video, right? <laughs> then you found out what kind of guy he was and that made you go, Ugh. <laughs> Not everything that looks good on the outside is good on the inside. Guys, there's a message for you in that too. In fact, the Word says a beautiful woman without discretion is like a gold ring in a pig's snout. You think about that next time you see some scandally clad teenager singing pop music for the adoration of millions. When I see that, I say, wow, a gold ring and a pig's nose. I hope to see that always. I don't always. That's a battle in me, just like it is every other person. And if you've never heard that from the pulpit, it's a shame. Trust is a curious thing. Turn with me to Romans. We're going to wrap this up. Because y'all are bored and ready to go home, right? I know you may have heard definitions of faith. Where have you been taught to define the word faith from? Hebrews what? Hebrews 11. I don't know about you, but I just never quite fit... Well, I guess you can guess this about me. I never quite fit into the conventional wisdom. I could no more stand up here and preach in a suit and be comfortable than I could wear a dress and be comfortable. That doesn't make preaching in a suit wrong. And ladies doesn't make preaching in a dress wrong. But I just don't have it in me to toe the party line because everybody else does. I'm glad that everybody understands Hebrews 11 and champions it as what faith is. Let me tell you the first place in the Scripture that ever made sense to me about what faith is. It's it's Romans 4, verse 18. Against all hope... Abraham, in hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Keep your finger there. Don't read that next line. 
Faith is not positive thinking. You can wake up tomorrow and say, my life's going to change, 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 and it will not change. At one point in my life, I became convicted because I knew I was a sinner. I was a sinner winning Bible awards and been baptized quite a few times, and my particular pastor wanted to book me as a youth evangelist, but I was a sinner nevertheless. I wanted to quit cursing. I wanted to quit a lot of things, but cursing is the one I'm going to talk to you about. As I tried to do this, talk about a work of the flesh, I thought, well, I'll do five push-ups every time I slip and say a curse word. Then I upped it to ten. Then fifteen. Then twenty. I could do more than a hundred push-ups in a sitting, but I could not control my tongue. Why is that? It is not wrong to face your circumstances and say it's hopeless. It is not wrong to reach the end of your rope and say, my body's dead. My wife's body's dead. How on earth could God's Word be true? What's wrong is to give up when you see that. God's waiting for you to get to the end of your rope. Your life has been one big train wreck waiting for you to get to the end of your rope so that you can find abundant life. The part of this that made sense to me was yet He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in His and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what He had promised. As the hope began to rise in me that I could do nothing about my circumstances and they were dire, but that I would trust that God would do something about them for me, In 1993, I had a dramatic encounter with the King of Kings. He spoke to me audibly in my bedroom. hope that doesn't make you think I'm insane. If I am, I've been insane for 13 years now and it's brought the biggest blessing in my life that I could imagine. What I couldn't do for myself, He did for me. And not just then, every day since. This is not the gospel of how great you are in Christ. It's the gospel of how greatly you were saved, are being saved, and will be saved. Faith to me simply is trust. Do you trust that His Word is true? Not do you believe it. Do you trust in it enough to act like it? I think we do ourselves a disservice when we hear songs about you have to have faith. Not because George Michael's a bad person. Not because it's not an appealing song. But because it gives you the idea that some kind of intellectual acknowledgement is what you need. In some ways, you you people that have grown up in church have been harmed because you get used to hearing the Word of God come forth from a pulpit until you have learned to fall asleep right next to the fire. Never having dug in the Word. Never having been at the bottom of a pit and rescued so that you know that you know that you know I was born again and I would never go back to that trash. In some ways, that's a dis... I think about it every day with my son. I wouldn't trade my radical salvation for anything in the world because there is not an ounce of self-righteousness in me. I know where I came from. Elijah spoke to this problem. Turn with me to Kings 18. And I promise we're going to end soon. This will be the shortest message I've ever preached. We just got started late. And I'm so glad we did. It was awesome. The truth is, today we have the dessert before the meal. And isn't that nice? 1 Kings 18. What was faith? 
Faith was not wavering in unbelief, but being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what He had promised. We're at a point in Israel's history where it is some 900 B.C. Since 1600 B.C., they've been following God, pledging their allegiance to Him, saying that they'll follow His Word. Just like many of you have pledged your lives to God. I will follow. I will do. All of the time placed on the right road, but what direction were you headed? In Kings 18, starting in verse 20, So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. I've been to Mount Carmel. You know what the beautiful view is that you see from Mount Carmel? The Valley of Megiddo. Get the word Armageddon. There is no such word in the Bible, by the way. It is Har Valley Megiddo. The Valley of Megiddo. And somehow or another, kind of like we've corrupted Yeshua right down into Jesus, Har Megiddo has become Armageddon and movies with Bruce Willis in it. So they're on Carmel. What do you all know about the Valley of Megiddo? It's where the battle that ends all battles takes place, right? Gorgeous place. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went up before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. When is the last time you heard a message like that? Don't preachers, aren't we used to? Preachers just like me, used to begging you to get saved? Used to saying, if you just will come to the altar, if you'll just pray the prayer, doing anything that we can to move you. Even we use closing tactics, just like a salesman. How many of you know you could be raptured any moment? You better get to this altar. You could die in a car crash. You better get to this altar. Isn't Jesus worthy of more than that? Show me one time He did that in the Scripture. What did He do? He looked at people, said, follow me, and then He turned and walked. If the Lord of glory needs a Savior to get you to follow Him, you're simply not ready. What happened to counting the cost? Saints, we're supposed to be following Him because you have given up your life for His. The problem is, after making that pledge, we spent years obtaining our life back from Him. met a Christian one time. And by the way, I listen to all kinds of music. hope that doesn't shake you. I hope you don't think it's a bad thing that I like Ezra Charles. Craig introduced me to him with a great deal of enthusiasm. But he said, when I was born again, I threw away all of the Beatles albums I'd been collecting for 20 years. I said, man, that's awesome. God will honor that sacrifice. He said, no, it's been 20 years and I've collected them all back again. I finally got the whole collection. I thought, how is that the pearl of great price? In his defense, this guy loved the Lord, but it is an example of how familiarity with the king has bred contempt. What we were so willing to do in the early days, I threw away every shirt. I'm a guy. And I threw away every shirt that I thought was too revealing. Now, that's hard to imagine now in this present state. But then it was something to be concerned about. I was scared of sand all of the sudden. I wouldn't go to a beach. I learned where every rock was placed on every college campus as I walked with my eyes at the ground. I don't preach about rules and dress codes and all of those foolish things. But I'm telling you, something has to happen in our hearts where we'll leave all for Jesus. 
We need to quit wavering between Jericho and Jerusalem. Make up your mind what you're called to and get there. Quit holding something back for the trip home. Faith is a reckless abandonment of all of your caution. Saints, if it does not hurt, if it does not require you some pain to trust Him, it's not really trust. Is it really obedience if I say, Judah, today I want you right now to eat this chocolate ice cream? Well, kind of. He eats it. But was that as a test of obedience? No, we need to serve him some spinach or something, right? We do so good. Lord, I'll sing for you. I'll preach for you. I'll pray for the sick for you. I'll, I'll do everything that I can get some glory from. Oh, did I say that out loud? What about when he wants you to do the things you can get no glory from except from him? What about what you do in the privacy of your own home? How about the way you talk to your wife? Have you ever noticed that it is so easy to be godly, Eric and Matthew? I would never say the things to Matthew that I will say to my own wife. Why is that? Well, the United States military defines it like this. Integrity is what you do when no one is around. They teach you that in officer training school. Is it really integrity? If in my own home I speak to my wife and kids one way, but in public I speak to them differently? Is that really the changed life? Or is that a religious facade, a fig leaf that I have sown over my nakedness to avoid me from being humble? Saints, I think that most of what we've considered Christianity is nothing more than the facade that people have sown over themselves to cover their nakedness. A wavering between God and Baal constantly. On the right road, but torn between Jerusalem and Jericho constantly. Wanting on some level, to see the glorious things revealed, but not willing to search for them like kings. When will we wake up? When will we stand and be counted? Elijah cried out, How long will you waver between two opinions? I want to encourage you. Should you choose to be unwavering in your faith? Should you choose to be powerful in the kingdom? To hold nothing back for this world. Psalms 33 teaches us in Psalms 34 and 37 that God will keep you alive in a famine. He'll deliver you from death. He'll hear the cries of the righteous. That though you're surrounded by a thousand on one side, Psalm 91 says, and ten thousand on another side, no harm will befall you. In fact, what you really find out is that God will make you like an anvil that wears out hammers. No matter how hard you are hit, if you're standing for Him, you will find the strength to stand. How frustrating it must be for the enemies of God. The harder they hit the first century church, the more they came against them, whether it was Nero or Diocletian or whoever it was. Herod. The church spread and grew and spread and grew and spread and grew and spread and grew. Why have the troubles come into your life? For the advancement of the kingdom of God. How did Saul... Shaul, get saved. Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the goads? One translation says pricks. These are the sharp little events in your life that were meant to steer you into this very place so that you can make a decision. The Bible calls it the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It's the place where the people must decide. You may have been in that valley quite a few times and renegotiated your decision with God. 
When will you take your stand? You'll find mercy when you fall. As long as you desire to get up and run. But God will not be mocked. I think that there's no church on earth that has mocked God more than the American church. The Europeans may come close. When will we be different? A man told me in the kitchen three weeks ago, Eric, I heard everything that you preached. And I appreciated it. But where I work, there's four Christians. And they're hypocrites. That's sad, isn't it? What do you think we told that man? I'm so sorry you work with hypocrites. Oh, I wish those guys were better Christians. Give me the phone. We'll call them. We'll call their pastors. Is that really the issue? The man wanted to justify himself. I can't follow God because there's hypocrites. I said, why don't you stand up and be a real Christian then? If everybody around you is not getting it right, when will you be the man that God's called you to be? When will you stand to your feet and be counted? If they don't get it right, why don't you get it right? Who will? If you won't, who will? When is the time if not now? He began to cry and he walked away. I hope he'll think twice about this. I wasn't trying to shame him. I believe he's called to greatness. The Bible says that we are called to be kings. The question is, do you reach your destiny or not? We're closing with miracles in John. Turn to John 1. I want you to get this. Okay? And when I say we're closing, I mean we got three more minutes. Can I have three minutes, Cass? Can I have three minutes, Mandy? How about you, Brad? Can I have three? Three, six, nine. We're doing good. Yeah, somebody's listening over there. I know, that's an old preacher joke. Somebody emailed me the one about a man had a heart attack in church and the paramedics carried out seven people without vitals before they found the man with the heart attack. Then there was a big debate and they had to form a committee to decide where to bury the survivors. Y'all have all heard those, I know. In John 1, look at verse 47. 46. No, 46. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, He said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing else. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under a fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. What a strange thing to put in the book of John. Why include all of that? Why not just Nathaniel ran into Jesus and they liked each other very much? I mean, if I was telling the story, talk to my wife sometimes, you know. As hard as it is to believe when I'm not preaching, I tend to be concise in my conversation. Why put in these details? I believe that John, who's not a synoptic gospel, he doesn't follow the same story of all of the others. Maybe that's why I'm drawn to him. He put things in for a very specific reason. Why would God want you to know that Jesus was aware of Nathaniel, had observed his spiritual state long before he ever met him? Could it be that God wants each of you to know today that he's been watching you from afar, looking to see whether or not you're an Israelite in whom there's no guile? Could that be why John includes this miracle first? How about John 2? In John 2, we have a wedding at Cana. And the wedding at Cana... Mom comes to Jesus and says, Hey, look, man, they're out of wine. Dear woman, what have I to do with you? 
wasn't her job to direct him. He moved only when he saw the father moving. Just so happens the father did move. And what did he do? The word says he took six ordinary stone water jars. And what did he do? He prayed over them. And what did it make? Well, just grape juice, right? Whatever. Why would the Word say He took stone water jars, the kind that are ordinary and used for ceremonial washing, and He made wine out of it? Not just any wine. What the master of the banquet said? Oh my God, this is the best for last. Why? Could it be that the second miracle that John includes, He wants you to know that not only has Jesus been watching your life from a distance, but He can take you, something ordinary, and do extraordinary things with you? You may look at your life and say, man, I'm just a run-of-the-mill average guy. I was never very good in school. I've never been an eloquent speaker. Who else said that? Oh, that's right, Moses. And He can do something extraordinary with you. Will you give Him the chance? How about John? There's a royal official whose child lay sick. Jesus says, well, I'll go with you. He says, no, Lord, I'm not worthy that a man like you would come under my roof. Third miracle that occurs. You know what the verse says next? The man took Jesus at His word and his child was healed from that very moment. Why on earth would John include this miracle third? Does he want you to know that he's been watching you to see if there's guile in your heart or not? To examine you long before you knew he was examining you? Does he want you to know that although you're ordinary, he can do extraordinary things with you if you'll let him? Does he want you to know that if you'll simply take him at his word and trust him, your needs will be met? Could that be it? Do you think maybe that's why the first three miracles in John occur that way? How about the fourth miracle? Turn with me to John 5. We close here. By the way, all of the miracles go like this and in this order. You might even say it's a testament to the divine inspiration in the Scripture. Or else John was just a very clever guy. Do you believe that? Didn't the Pharisees call him ignorant fishermen? But they took note they'd been with Jesus? I love after service. It always makes me happy and people don't know why I'm laughing. I try to do it on the inside. Every once in a while somebody comes up and they're kind of squirming. Did so-and-so tell you about me? Did they tell you about my situation? No. No, it's just that God has been watching your life for a long time. Like the lady told John Hagee one time. And by the way, that's not an endorsement of John Hagee. I don't know anything about him other than he's a round little guy in silver suits. speaks well. And I'm sure he's a wonderful guy. That's what I meant to say. But he said that she came up to him after service and he had just got through preaching on Balaam and his donkey. She said, I never realized before today that God really can use any old jackass. He said he didn't know how to take that. (laughs) Okay, last miracle in John I'm going to cover with you and then we are going to close. In John 5, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Which way did He go to Jerusalem? Did that mean He was south of it and needed to head north? Anywhere you are in Israel, anywhere you are in the world, you are elevating yourself to go to the city of God. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheol, 
which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled used the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there, or who had been there, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. I don't know what hinders you from choosing to follow God with all of your heart. I don't know what pulls at your heart from Jericho or what causes you to waver between God and Baal. I don't know what makes the Lord's way seem mysterious instead of revealed to you. But I do know that no matter how long you've been in the condition that you're in, whether it's one year or 38 years, when you respond to the Word of God, when you respond to the call of Jesus, it can and will change. You think maybe that's why John included how long the guy had been in that position? If it had been me, I'd have skipped it. He was hurt and Jesus helped him. Let's move on. Seems like extraneous details. Except that what God is trying to show you is it doesn't matter how long you've been in the situation you're in, it can change. All you have to do is take Him at His word. Will you decide to do that today? That's the question. And not just today. Tomorrow, when you've forgotten about the worship songs. When you've forgotten about the message. When you're at work with your friends that are used to you acting a certain way. Will you stand up and decide, Jesus? Or you waver between Him and Baal and hope He doesn't notice? Stand up and let's pray. Holy, holy God, there was a Father who brought a Son to You. And He wanted so badly to believe that You could help Him but all he had ever seen from religious people convinced him that you might not be able to. He said to you, Lord, if you can help my son. And you responded to him, if you can. He said, Lord, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. That's our heart's cry today. Lord, we believe what you said. All things are possible for him who believes. Holy One, we're asking you to help us in our unbelief today. Change our hearts. Lord, where we've ventured too far into Your freedom and things permissible for us have become unprofitable for us, Lord, we would tear out an eye if that meant it was going to keep us from the kingdom. Give us a right heart. Give us one that says that I am dead, that I might live. Lord, now that we've counted the cost, I pray that Your comfort and Your power would reside in us fully. In the name of Jesus, we commit our very lives to You now. And we rely on You. Amen. Alright, saints. Jesus washed His disciples' feet at the Last Supper, did He not? You know, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they still wash feet every time before they take communion. Do you think that was the point? Jesus said, you'll be blessed if you go and do these things. 
James says, if you have heard this word only and not become a doer of it, you're deceived. I didn't say that. The Lord's own half-brother said that. Decide this week to put it into practice and do it. Amen? Amen.